0: And uh, I would like to uh, invite you to join me in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And uh, as, you're, as you're finding your way there, uh, I want to say again what a joy it is for us to be able to gather together today in this assembly. Uh, it's good for us to gather together as the Lord's redeemed God's been so gracious to us. He's been so kind to us uh, throughout the generations. And the thing that we see in Malachi is the faithfulness of God. And as God brings certain things that the people of the day, Israel, had done against God, that had offended God, God reminds them over and over again of his faithfulness. God does not change. And that's a remarkable testimony of his character and his nature uh, when we consider that everything around us changes constantly. We, we are being changed day after day and moment after moment. And we come here in this assembly, this gathered assembly, as people who are worshiping the immutable God, as people who have been redeemed by Jesus the Messiah, who've been born again raised or have been born again according to the living hope of Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead. So we have the great privilege uh, of us being here together today, and so let's take advantage of it, and I want to invite you to worship with me as I read Malachi chapter 3, hear the word of God. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift Witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien or the foreigner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be A delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's join our hearts together and beg for his help. Father, in heaven, once again, here we are. And we sit at your mercy we sit as those who are in need of your grace. And Lord, we pray, we, we beg of you this morning that you will not hold back from us. God, we pray that you would give us, Lord, not just your hand, but you would give us your face this morning. God, we pray that you would give and grant all the grace necessary in order to seek you with undistracted hearts, with unmuddied and cluttered up eyes, with a heart that is wholly committed to you. God, do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Brian mentioned uh, at the beginning of today's gathering, uh, this is the last book in the Old Testament. So Uh, Sixty-six books of the Bible, 40 authors, depending on who you ask. Uh, The Bible's written in a span of 1,400 to 1,600 uh, years, uh, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, all about one person. There's one thread that is thread throughout the entire Bible. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And that's God's intention, that's how God is designed to get glory for himself. And so we come to the end of these minor prophets, uh, meaning that this is the last written record of God speaking until we enter into the New Testament, until we come to the Gospel of Matthew. And this is known as the intertestamental period, and it's believed to last about 400 years where there is no written record of God speaking. So... We assume that God is speaking to his people. We just don't have record uh, for that. And uh, here at Grace Church, we're going to have a, uh, we'll be preaching through books of the, uh, preaching through certain messages in uh, January, February, and March. But we won't resume, so it'll be kind of our intertestamental period. We won't resume with Matthew until April. But for the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with sermons, uh, trying to explain what the Bible has to say and answering the question, what is the gospel? But when we consider today Malachi, his name means my messenger or messenger of the Lord. And this is the only known incidence in the Bible where we have his name recorded. But it's interesting. His name means my messenger a messenger of the Lord. But chapter 3 verse 1 begins with, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And so he's going to be the one who's going to prepare the way for me. So there's a correlation here, a possible foreshadowing to someone else uh, who was mentioned in Isaiah and said he will, go, he, he will be one who prepares the way of the Lord. And we know from our study in the Gospel of John that this person is John the Baptist who stood before the people, and kids could probably finish this memory verse in John 1.29, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The temple was uh, in its completion, and it was far less superior, both physically and spiritually. And as people are prone to do, they complained about this. They were dissatisfied. They were longing for the glory of the former days. And so what Malachi does is he lays out six disputations or arguments in order to address the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of the Israelites. Disputation number one was this. God begins in chapter one by stating his love for his people. That's his agenda. That's where he begins. That's where he starts. I love you. The second disputation is when God addresses the faithless priests. In chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. Following this, the third disputation is when God addresses his faithless people. The fourth disputation, which carries into a little bit of what we're looking at this morning. God sends his messenger of judgment. The fifth disputation is the call to return to God and to serve him. God's calling them or commanding their repentance. And then the last disputation is the day of the Lord, and that covers chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 6. But I want us to consider something as we close out the Old Testament to remind each and every one of us that each and every book of the Bible is to be understood in the context of the canon of Scripture. What do you do when you taste food that is just bursting with flavor? You're naturally going to ask, what are the ingredients that are in this dish that makes it taste so flavorful? You assume there's more than just one ingredient that makes this to be so tasty. Salt, pepper, garlic, onion, all of those things are flavorful ingredients, but you don't ever see somebody gnawing on an onion like it's a honeycrisp apple. So to preach Malachi, whether it's one overview sermon or if we were to go verse by verse, in essence is a labor to to preach the entire Bible. So here's our outline this morning. Number one is the messenger is sent. Secondly, the call to repentance has been issued. And third, remembering our faithful God. So let's look at number one, chapter three, verses one through six. The messenger is sent. Who is this messenger? Is this... Malachi referencing himself, I want you to consider this, the word, my messenger, with the phrase, the Lord whom you seek, and this phrase here, the messenger of the covenant, are one and the same person. God's not speaking of different people here. He's speaking of the same person. What do we need to know about this messenger, his uniqueness? Well, first and foremost is that he's coming That's the first thing that he tells them. He is coming. He is coming. And he he couples this with his coming. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who is going to be able to stand when he appears? This is ominous. And it's imminent in nature. Meaning it's going to happen. And here's what he's going to do when he comes. Verse 1, he's going to clear. Verse 2, he's going to refine. Verse 2, he's going to cleanse. He's going to purify. This is what this messenger is going to do among the people of God. This is what God has sent him to do. He's going to remove all that is necessary so that they are able to seek him with a heart that's not divided in other things. They're going to be able to seek him and not just the glory of a temple. We're going to worship God. God's removing all that's necessary so that we can seek the Lord. So that they can present to the Lord Offerings in righteousness and not just with an idolatrous heart. What is the message of this messenger? It has less to do with words that he's saying in this instance, but more about what he's going to do. He's drawing near for judgment. That's what he's doing. He's drawing near for judgment. And this judgment is going to be swift. It's going to happen quickly. There's not going to be any deliberation. There's not going to be anybody uh, able to stand before the judgment of God and say, but what about this or make excuses for this? It's going to be swift. It's going to be against people and it's going to be for people. Don't we see the perfect balance of Christ on display? God's going to draw near in judgment. means he's going to be a swift witness against the sinner. He's going to be a swift witness. Witness against the oppressor. Yet he will be a swift advocate for the widow, orphan, and foreigner who fears God. Marvel and glory in the perfect character of God. He is both just and the justifier. He is against the sinner and those who oppress people but in a perfect way, in a way that doesn't show any kind of imbalance at all in his nature and character, he is for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And he's this way for his people swiftly. God draws near to his people swiftly. Once again, the Bible makes quite plainly that God is either going to be for you and therefore with you or he is against you and is storing up wrath in order to judge you. Please don't misunderstand the weekly gatherings of this church with less of a sense of urgency in listening to and seeking God. It's very easy for me to enter into these weekly gatherings Assuming a lot of things. But we must have the same urgency. As the Israelites did when God's saying, I'm sending my messenger and my messenger is going to draw. We ought to expect that that's what's happening right near right now. Through the person and work of the Holy Spirit that God is drawing near. He's storing up wrath for those here who are rejecting him. And he is fighting the fight of faith and joy for those who are walking faithfully with him. This word sent is a theme that's thread throughout the Bible. It's one of the most precious words in all of the Bible. And it has its origin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It continues through the multiple messages given from God through the prophets that he has raised up. We we see it as it's inaugurated in the incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah, as it's known in the public ministry of Christ, as it's accomplished in the crucifixion and resurrection, as it's further realized in the ascension and as it continues through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and Christ's current intercession for us and eventually will be culminated in the return of Christ as he gathers us to himself for the eternal worship of Jesus the triune God. So therefore, it will behoove us to take the message from the messenger with the same ominous and imminent understanding. What is this message based upon? It's based upon God's immutability, God's unchangeableness. This is one of the more important verses in all of the Bible God is describing himself. And when God says things, I, when he describes himself in ways such as this, I, the Lord, we ought to listen to everything in the Bible, but we ought to pay especially close attention when God is describing himself in such clear ways. His immutability is one of his incommunicable attributes, which are characteristics that he alone possesses. So those of you enrooted from a couple of years back, You probably recall studying communicable and incommunicable attributes. Malachi 3 verse 6 is likely one of those that you looked at and trying to understand what does it mean that God is unchangeable? He's constant. He doesn't have mood swings. He's the same. He's not influenced or molded by anything. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's not confused. Nor is he confusing. So as we consider entering into another year when everybody, whether you put any stock into resolutions or not, we're always looking for improvements, areas we can grow. As my son reminded me this past week when I put on a sweater similar to his, he's like, Daddy, I got a sweater just like that. Maybe we can Start dressing together. I can put pants on like yours and shoes. And he just kept saying sweet thing after sweet thing after sweet thing until he said, and then I can eat a lot and get a big belly like you. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's, uh, let's stop, you know, because, you know, because, Daddy, I got six abs and you got one. I was like, hey, 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 man, come on. I'm, 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 I'm going to get with the program. As we consider all these things, these, these we want to change, we want to grow, God He's eternal, he's fixed, he's unchangeable, he's immutable. What does this mean? How does this fully assure our hearts in him? How does it work itself out in his nature? It works itself itself out in his purpose. It works itself out in his promises. We don't have to worry about God going back on his word. We don't have to worry about God in some way shifting the things that are essential for eternal life. Because God is immutable. But one of the cries or complaints from Israel was on whether or not God would be, hear this, okay? One of the cries or complaints from Israel is whether or not God was going to be just toward the wicked. Essentially, are you paying attention to what the wicked are doing? Are you going to do something about this? God cites his immutability, okay? I, the Lord, do not change, all right? They would assume that's a good thing. But the emphasis is not so much to remind Israel that he's going to be just toward the wicked, but it's really to expose their entitled, arrogant hearts. We're asking the wrong question. God is reminding his people that he's unchangeable. Not only toward the wicked that he's going to pour out his wrath upon them, but God's unchangeable toward the righteous. Ruminate on that a bit. Christian, be thankful. Eternally thankful. That God does not change his love toward you based upon your performance toward him. God, are you going to do something about the wicked? I, the Lord, do not change. Change. That's good news for those of us in Christ. That he does, His disposition toward us does not change based upon our disobedience toward him. So maybe we ought to just pause for just a slight moment so that you can in your heart quietly thank God that he's immutable. Praise Him for that. So Christian, because of the love of God, the work of Christ, and the perpetual work of the Holy Spirit, you can and will endure the day of His return. And you will stand when Christ appears. And you will be able to do this because of His enduring strength. I got you. Mine. Mine. Has never sounded more precious to our ears. So this is the messenger that was sent. Secondly, the call to repentance, verses 6 through 15. I included it in verse 6 in this section again, because it is, it's based upon the unchangeableness of God. There were three calls to repentance, or basically three charges that God had against his people. The first one was this: they turned aside from God's statutes, and did not keep them. We see that in verse 7. One author put it this way, to turn away connotes rebellion and mutiny. It's a willful rejection of divine instruction when used in the context of covenant language. Turning aside, this word turning aside can also mean to evade or to scorn. So the range of meaning and understanding what they did is very helpful to capture Israel's disposition before the Lord. They had turned from God. They were attempting to evade him. And what this naturally produced is really a scorn for God. Had you asked them point blank, do you scorn God? Are you against God? Likely they would have said, no, that's not how I feel towards Him. But in their heart, in their heart, they were turning away. And because they were turning away, they were attempting to evade him. One of the initial steps in a backslidden heart is when you attempt to evade God's word. Disobedience to his word is to scorn God himself. And what God was laying out before them was essentially this. You have little to no regard for my word. You have little to no regard for what I have to say. And if we have little to no regard for what he has to say, that means we have little to no regard for him. They turn from God. And it's, that's, that's a very dangerous place to be in. But you chart any turning away from God, you chart it all the way back to its core, and to some degree, it's going to be a turning away from the word of God. How God has chosen to reveal himself. They had also were guilty of robbing God. They had robbed God by not giving him the full tithe. Tithe meant a tenth, and it represented a tenth of the people's produce or income that was owed to God for the temple service and various social obligations. The basic tenth was paid to the Levites for their maintenance. And from this, the, tenth, the Levites paid a tenth to ministering priests that would serve among them. But God told them, you're holding back from me. You're holding back from me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this as a Lord of hosts. So he's calling them to repentance, calling them to obedience, calling them to test him, saying, bring to me the full tithe and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This has more to do than when us being a bit scroogish with our, with our money. It's our, it's our life. It's our disposition before the Lord. Why would we attempt to hold anything back from God? Holding anything from God has more to do with than whether or not we want to give tithes or give offerings, it says something about our trust in God. It says something about what we believe is his and what we falsely assume is ours. Is not everything the Lord's? Is it not his to use? And I'm not talking about just material possessions, external things that we can do. I'm speaking of matters of the heart. Our our life for you died and your life is not your own. You were hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears then you will appear with him in glory. That's Colossians 3. Our life is no longer our own. We were bought with a price and that price, the blood of Christ. We're his temple. We're his people. We're his possession. So that's great joy to be able to leverage your life in that way. And say, I just I trust what you're going to do and how you're going to use me for your glory. With that great promise, that God is going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. They were also guilty of speaking against God. Verses 13 through 15. You see. Perhaps the perilous digression that's happening. Their heart had begun to turn from the Lord, and this showed itself by turning aside from the statutes of God. This is followed by half-hearted worship, which God describes as robbing from him. You'll recall what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Therefore, you worship me in vain. This digression continues with arrogant and incriminating words against God. I tremble just to read what they have said here in the Bible that I fear some of us have been guilty of saying with our heart. Here's what they say. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping charge or walking as in mourning? The arrogant is blessed. Evildoers prosper. They test God and they escape. This was their heart. Their heart had finally, had finally been drawn out. Finally been drawn out. They were able to see for themselves, this is how they really felt about God. And it took a while. It took quite a bit of excavating. It took persistent work for their heart to be drawn out, for them to be able to say, this is what I really think about him. It's vain to serve him. The wicked, they escape God. All this we've been doing, is it worth it? Is this really worth it? They believe God is being unjust. They believe he's being unfair to them. They are demonstrating that they are not repentant. And therefore, this is what they're going to try to do to God. We're just, I'll just hold back from him. I'll just refrain. I'll just draw back from him. And they're going to the point. They are getting to the point in their heart. And this is, this is, this is so dangerous. They're getting to the point in their heart where they are using what is true about God as accusations against him. I'm going to illustrate this for us in just a moment. The only thing that's going to change this damnable plight is repentance. So I want to ask you, may I ask you a few diagnostic questions? And I want to trust the Spirit to do His work in us. In what areas are you being tempted to believe that it is vain to serve the living God? What areas right now are you being tempted to think, to believe, to question the vanity of serving the living God? They said it's vain to serve God. But what they didn't say, he is a living God. Where are you being tempted right now to think God is shortchanging you in life where do you think you're, where are you being tempted to think that he is shortchanging you in life? how might you be tempted right now to think that the pleasures of the wicked and what they are enjoying right now is worth the very allegiance of your soul are you looking at the wicked you're seeing the pleasure that they are enjoying right now while knowing Psalm 73, this is the only pleasure they're gonna be able to enjoy for all eternity. And yet still you're tempted to think maybe, maybe that is more plausible. Maybe that is more enjoyable than what I'm going through right now. Is it worth it? Jesus said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Is there anyone among us who has given any thought whatsoever to try to attempt to escape from God rather than run to Him and escape the wrath to come? I really don't, honestly don't know where your heart may be with any of those questions. I'm hopeful, I trust the work of the Spirit that there's likely other questions right now that God has surfaced in your heart as a result of this text. And if that's the case, praise be to God, he's, he's being kind to you in this moment. He's being kind to you in this moment. And the only loving counsel I can give is to say what God has said about himself in verse 6. I, the Lord, don't change. I, the Lord, do not change. Repentance in the days of Malachi. There were several instances in the ministry of Malachi, if you've read the four chapters, where God had brought a clear charge against Israel that they followed up with a question that exposed their heart. As I mentioned to you earlier, chapter one began with a stated agenda, and this agenda is the basis of his love for his people. The oracle of the word of the Lord. To Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's where, he, that's where he begins. This has been known by the Lord's people since the very start. He told them as, as much in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he said, I've loved you because I've loved you. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I've loved you because I love you. It has been demonstrated from the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned against God and tempted to flee him. God pursued them. The agenda of love and redemption has been ongoing through the Old Testament. God has sent His prophets to speak on His behalf to His people. God has used visions. He has won battles. He has raised up leaders. He has sustained His people through their wandering because of their very own sin against Him. He has brought upon them remedial judgments. He has watched over them through these judgments. He has brought them, uh, brought upon them captivity. He has watched them through captivity. He has ordained His very temple to get destroyed, promised for it to be rebuilt. There is no question whatsoever thus far in redemptive history towards whether or not God is committed to His covenant people. I have loved you, declares the Lord. So you can imagine the offense God takes when His people retort back how have you loved us? Really? You're not paid attention? That was, their, that was their retort. That was their response. Well, how have you loved us? Honor me is what he follows up with, chapter one. How have we despised your name? You offer polluted food. How have we polluted you? You're offering blind sacrifices, lame and sick sacrifices. So what you're doing, you offer what is determined as evil, and then you try to entreat or seek the favor of God. You wouldn't do this, God tells him, You wouldn't do this to your own governor. Is there just one of you, verse 10? You profane the name of the Lord with a polluted table, fruit, and despised food. You think this is wearisome, and you snort at it. Your offering is what has been brought by violence, or lame, or sick, Shall God saying this to them shall I accept this from your hand God is drawing a contrast here with what be, can be given with a hand while the heart remains far from God I'm going to say that again because that's yet another very dangerous pitfall in the Christian life He's drawn a contrast of what can be given with a hand while the heart is far From God. This ought to make you and I tremble inside. The duties of the Christian life that we can perform without and apart from a repentant heart. God pronounces a curse upon the one who makes a vow, who offers a vow for a male and yet sacrifices to the Lord the very thing that is blemished. So let me ask you this. What in you right now is in need of cleansing? What in you right now is in need of purging or refining? Repent from it right now. That's not something you have to pray about. You don't have to pray about whether or not you should repent. You repent. That's what Christians do. Don't wait until the end of this sermon. Do it now. Don't wait until tomorrow. Repent now. Holy Spirit, repentance turns all of the idiotic questions from Israel upon their head. Rather than saying, how have we done this? Which was their retort. Every time God said, you did this, that's how they responded. Well, how have we done this? Rather than saying that, a repentant person will say, by way of confession, this is what I've done from my sinful heart. There are no buts in repentance. There are no excuses. There are no explanation. God is the only one who is allowed to have a but when it comes to repentance. And this but hinges upon a person who took our sin and paid for it with his own blood, whereby granting us his righteousness that makes and allows our confession to be heard, that allows our confession to be received, to be accepted, to be absolved, and to be satisfied. For us to present to the Lord a righteous offering requires, first and foremost, that we receive the righteousness of Christ as God's offering to us. God says at the close of chapter 1, I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. He bookends this chapter by beginning it with saying, I love you, and closing it with, I will be feared. Lastly, remembering our faithful God, verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Those who fear God, those who fear God, remember God. And those who fear God and remember God, they speak to one another about God. Remembrance of God always has a corporate element to it. We share our joys. And we share our struggles. When God adopts us. He adopts us into a family. And not just any family. But a faith family. An eternal family. What happens with those who fear the Lord? The Lord gave attention to their words. He gave attention to their words by hearing what they were saying. And then a book of remembrance was written before God for those who fear him and for those who esteem his name. There, there are no better words for the redeemed to hear. There are no better and more assuring words to hear than for the redeemed to hear God say this about you. They will be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession that's God's love demonstrated and on display you're mine I will make you mine on this day there are no better words for the redeemed ears to hear than this and the sweetness of God saying mine it continues it doesn't stop there it continues when we understand the latter half of verse 17 It says, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. The sweetness continues as we understand this part of verse 17 in light of Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 17, he states, I will spare them as a man spares his own son. The way that he's able to spare us as if we're his only son is because he did not spare his only begotten son, but delivered him over for us all. How can we not believe also that God has freely given us, in this same Christ, all things. This is love. This is love. The unchangeable God loves us with an everlasting love. Let's give heed to him, and let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, so true. The words we've often sung. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the great mercy and grace that you've extended to us in Christ. You're so patient with us, Lord. You're you're clear in exposing our sin and our lack of repentance. And God, you're so faithful and gracious to show those who are not in Christ the only remedy for their sins and to show those who are in Christ what Christ has done in order for us to have the joy to be able to walk in faithful obedience to you. God, we're thankful that you, we praise you that you are unchangeable, And we thank you for this great love that you have lavished upon us in Christ. So God help us, Lord, as we as we as we enter into another year, Lord God, we ask that you would work in our heart and and, and show, Lord, are there any ways that we are robbing you? Are there any ways that we are holding back from you? Are there any way, any areas of our heart? Where we are neglecting you. God we pray that you as you expose that. We know that you'll give all the grace and mercy necessary. For us not to try to change in our own strength. But for us to be able to confess this. And repent from this. So that we know the joy of being able to walk with you. With a heart that's not divided. With a life that's not uh, with different allegiances, but as those who fear your name and those who love you as ones who are loved by you. We praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen.